Hello, my name is Steve. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. The Lord's Spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners and give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify himself. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. I'm giving you this commission in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is coming to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready to do it, whether it is convenient or inconvenient. Correct, confront, and encourage with patience and instruction. There will come a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. They will collect teachers who say what they want to hear because they are self-centered. They will turn their back on the truth and turn to myths. But you must keep control of yourself in all circumstances. Endure suffering, do the work of a preacher of the good news, and carry out your service fully. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Bill. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 16:15 through 20. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Remain standing as we pray. So Jesus, we welcome you in this place by your Spirit. We ask that you would open up our eyes, Lord, that we would see Jesus clearly and in a fresh way today. We pray that you'd open up our ears, that the very word of God would resonate and echo, reverberate toward us. And we pray that you open up our hearts, that we would gain today not simply new information or new knowledge, but we would gain today the very life of God rising up inside our hearts. In Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I just want to say again to 
John Egan, thank you for joining us here this morning. I hold your applause for a second. I just want to say a couple of things. John mentioned we've known each other for 19 years. John was uh, uh, the best man in, in my wedding, and so I've known him for a long time. We were part of uh, a band together. We would, we've been doing music and worship for a long time. And, and when I stepped out of that band maybe eight years ago or so, I, John uh, you know, took the reins completely. We were kind of co-leading and, along with another friend of ours. And when I stepped out, you know, John sort of took the reins completely and the band really took off. So uh, make of that what you will. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, you, you may not know this, but John has written some in- incredible songs that um, others have recorded and, and carried throughout the world. But the, the point of that is really how those songs have, uh, have meant so much and carried so much hope to so many people, including us and including our church. And uh, to have John here this morning is, is not about having um, uh, even just a friend or, or someone famous. It's about having someone who's trusted. And so I just appreciate you, John. So now, thank you for leading us this morning. We are in part 16 The final part of this series I said on Instagram and Facebook last night, this is the series finale, Mark's shocking conclusion to the epic drama, you know. Uh, And actually, even though we're tongue-in-cheek, you know, borrowing from our language of TV shows, series finales, uh, it is a little bit like that because Mark, he didn't write for uh, a, a group of people who were going to read primarily. He wrote for people who were going to listen to this being read out loud. In fact, many scholars think the way Mark wrote this, it was almost like a play. So in, in a sense, Mark has a, a visual or auditory congregation in mind when he's writing these words. And so there's things about Mark's gospel that really do kind of unfold like a play. And one of the questions as we've journeyed through the series for 15 weeks now, one of the threads we've kept on, held on to through the series is the question, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? What will we make of this man? And, and Mark, Mark's great because he, he, he's not like John. He doesn't dump all this theology on us right away. John chapter 1, there's all of this theology of the incarnation. He's not like Matthew who opens up with a genealogy. <laughs> You know, you're like, snooze fest, Matthew, like, come on. But Mark, Mark drops us into the action right away because Mark wants us to sort of get the story and all of its drama. And so he uses this word immediately, 42 times. It's kind of a fast-paced drama. But Mark also doesn't hide from us the, the raw reactions of people toward Jesus. And so you have disciples who are scratching their heads saying, well, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You have religious leaders saying, I think this guy is claiming to do something only God can do. And you have Jesus' own family saying, we think he's lost his mind. So Mark doesn't censor, doesn't screen out from us the very raw responses to Jesus. It's almost like Mark is giving you permission Go ahead, wrestle with this surprising figure, this person, Jesus. Wrestle with him because if you really let yourself be confronted with all that he is and claims to be, it should turn your world upside down. It should mess with you. Time magazine a few years ago said Jesus is the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of humanity. It's quite a claim. Now, they're not saying anything about divinity. They're not saying anything about... But they're saying, look, Jesus is the most persistent symbol. In other words, when we think about purity and love and selflessness, there's one iconic figure that we can't shake. And all throughout human history, the person we keep coming back to is this person of Jesus. 
So this series has been about us saying, well, who is this Jesus? Maybe you already know. You've been walking with him for a long time. Well, this is a chance to see him with fresh eyes, to take off some of the the churchy lenses, if you will, and to see him in its stunning, stark glory. Maybe for others of you, you're saying, well, I'm still sort of trying to figure out who this Jesus is. And by this point in the series, you're realizing one of the options we don't have is to say that he was a nice teacher who did a lot of good stuff. Because if we take seriously these claims, we realize either he really is the Son of God or he's the biggest nutcase in the history of the world, the most megalomaniac, the biggest megalomaniac that we've ever known, claiming and doing these things. Mark, one of his favorite phrases, maybe his favorite phrase to talk about who Jesus is, is the phrase, Son of God. That's why week one in our series, we said, Jesus, the Son of God. And we talked about Jesus having an identity that is actually of the same essence of God. We said it in the creed, God from God, light from light, of one being with the Father. But not just identity, but also a destiny that came from God. Mark's opening scene in the drama shows us this. And then also an an authority that comes from God. So when Mark says Jesus is the Son of God, he's saying all of those things. He's saying Jesus has an identity, a destiny, and an authority that comes from God. So how is Jesus revealed as the Son of God? How in Mark's drama does he do this? Well, right from the very first verse. Imagine this, the lights go down, the curtain pulls back, and the narrator's voice says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Cue the music. And you're realizing, okay, this is it. The stage is set. This is how we're going to discover who this Jesus is. And then the opening scene is of this guy in camel hair, John the Baptist, out by the river, and he's baptizing Jesus. And God the Father then declares who Jesus is. And God the Father, probably played by the voiceover talents of Sean Connery, says... And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, with whom I am well pleased. And (laughs) theatrical. And so Mark, Mark has not just as the narrator introducing us to Jesus as the Son of God, but he is God the Father introducing us to Jesus as his Son. That happens in Mark 1. Well, in Mark 9, you have the Father speaking again, this time to a small group of disciples. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. It's almost like roughly somewhere around there is the intermission between Act 1 and Act 2. Mark closes Act 1 with a final bookend. He opened with the Father saying, this is my son, and he closes with, saying, with the Father saying again, this is my son. But do you know, there's two other times in between those bookends that someone declares Jesus as the Son of God. Do you know who it is? It's demons. It's demons. Listen to this in Mark um, Mark 3, verse 11, and when the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. 
Then again in Mark 5, verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, this is a man who's, who's, who's riddled with demonic activity, and he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So in Act 1, you have God the Father saying that Jesus is his Son, as bookends, and in the middle, you've got demons saying that Jesus is the Son of God. In Act 2, nobody else declares Jesus is the Son of God until the very end. Until the very end of the drama. I know you're thinking, well, doesn't Peter say something? Peter says, in Mark's gospel, Peter's words are, you are the Messiah, which is a little bit different. Mark is very particular and precise in who he reserves the, the act of calling Jesus the Son of God. So far, no human has done it. And we go all the way to the end of Mark's drama, to Mark 15, to find a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion is the first person, first human, to declare Jesus' identity. Listen to this in verse 37 of Mark 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. I think this is no accident that Mark has chosen a Roman centurion to be the first person to declare Jesus' identity. This is amazing, because if you think about it, who was a Roman centurion in Mark's day? Well, he represented everything that was wrong with the world, right? You have, as a good Jew, you would have grown up praying this prayer over every meal. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. And then there's some pagan Roman dude who calls himself Caesar and says, I'm the king of the universe. That Caesar is an affront to everything a good Jewish kid would have grown up believing. And now this centurion, who's a centurion? A centurion is a person who's devoted his whole life to following Caesar and extending his kingdom. Basically, this is the worst person imaginable. This is a person who gives his life to work for the guy who represents opposition to God? I mean, you would probably find it hard not to hate a Roman centurion. And not just any Roman centurion, but a Roman centurion whose very specific task was to execute those who revolted, those who were part of an uprising. Imagine this. You're sitting at dinner one day, your dad comes in, your mom's a mess, she's crying. What's, what happened today? Nothing. Don't want to tell you about it, son. What happened today? Well, there was another crucifixion outside Jerusalem, son. What, what happened? They thought this teacher was getting too popular, and they, well, they, they killed him. From an early age, you associate a Roman centurion with everything that is wrong with the world with the very person who hates God, who opposes God, who acts against God. I mean, who would that be in our day? The person who presides over not crucifixions but beheadings? The person who plots acts to oppose? And Mark chooses that guy to make the confession about Jesus? You've got to be kidding me, Mark. 
I mean, you didn't have to choose a Pharisee or a scribe or a priest, but at least choose a Jew. You're going to choose a Roman centurion to give the most important lines in the script so far. That's a gutsy move. I think what Mark is trying to say is that this good news of Jesus is for everyone. This good news. He says, look, I'm going to tell you the beginning of the good news about Jesus. And then by putting it out of the mouth of a centurion, it's Mark's way of saying, guys, are you paying attention? Because the good news of Jesus is for everyone. It's not just good news for Jews. It's not just good news for religious people. It's not just good news for people that you like and agree with and who share your values. This is good news for everyone. And that's challenging to us. And yet, isn't it so beautiful? Because that means no matter who you are, what you've done, or what you are doing, you're not beyond the saving reach of Jesus Christ. That's the most beautiful news of all. You say, well, you know, I'm glad you don't know. I've, I've done this. I've done this. You know, there's, there's this record on me. If you, if you did a background check, you'd find, you know. I, I, and even if you didn't, I mean, my things are more hidden. And I just, if you could only see my search history on my phone. And I just, I, And even a hardened Roman centurion has his eyes opened. Surely this man was the son of God. Friends, the good news of Jesus is for everyone. So the question really is, what will you do with this good news? What will you do with this good news? What will you do with the good news of that the, the knowledge that Jesus actually is the Son of God? Because we've already seen that knowing that he's the Son of God is not enough. Even the demons knew. James will say that in his letter. He'll say, look, the demons believe in God and they shudder. He's like, great, good for you. You know that Jesus, great. What now? Mark has built his drama up to a crescendo to say, okay, the Father declared it. Demons recognize it. The worst sinner in the world so far can confess it. But now what will you do? What will you do with the good news that Jesus is the Son of God? Mark 16 verse 9 is the story of Jesus appearing to the disciples after the resurrection. These verses from verse 9 onwards were added later. In fact, Mark's story, Mark's original story ends with verse 8. We'll get to that in a moment. But eventually they realized, okay, we better fill in the rest of the story. And so a, a later group of people added these verses. Verse 9, it says, Now when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. I think it's important to know that the story of the church starts out with men not listening to women. I'm just saying, it's important to know that. And that's true for listening to women preachers, but it may also be true in your homes. Your wife might say, you see? <laughs> the church almost didn't get launched because men refused to listen to women. <laughs> Almost. Verse 12, after these things, he appeared to, in another form to two of them, other disciples, as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, and they did not believe them. Do you see a pattern? Mark wants us to know, 
We're confronted with a decision when this, when this good news is presented to us, but sometimes it's hard to believe. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, saying, guys, why didn't you believe Mary? Why didn't you believe the other two? Why? It says, because they did, they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. The first thing we're supposed to do with this good news is to repent and to believe. But do you know that that can be so hard to do? Sometimes in our kind of concept of the gospel and the way it works, we think that we have to personally verify and validate everything before we can believe. So so wait a minute, Uh, you know, I am the center of the universe, and so all truth comes through me. And if I verify it, then it is true. Now, sometimes this is played off as being really humble. So, well, Mr. Glenn, preacher guy, I just think it's really arrogant to say that Jesus is the Son of God because what about the other religions? I feel like it's more humble to say that everybody has a path to God and they're all equally valid. Now, I grew up in a multi-religious country, Malaysia, where Christians were only 10%, 11% of the population. There's nothing more offensive than to try to tell a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim that their religions are all basically the same. That actually, that is the height of arrogance. Because it basically says, hey guys, I'm on the mountaintop. Y'all are so cute down there doing your little religion thing. But I can see that they're all kind of the same, so just chill out. Wow, how enlightened of you. And actually, the invitation, the Christian invitation into faith is not an invitation to personally verify and validate and prove every detail. No, it's actually to take the posture of humility that says, I will receive what the witnesses have passed on to me. I'll receive what the witnesses have passed on. Jesus rebukes the disciples for not believing those who witnessed his resurrection. Now, here we are, 2,000 years later, we're being asked to do the same thing. Don't believe because you've personally verified and proved, because then you're still the center of the universe. You're still the arbiter of truth. Believe because you've emptied your hands and bowed your knee and said, I will believe the, witness, the witnesses that have gone before, the witness of the church, that which I have received, Paul says, I'm passing on to you. Even the apostle Paul says, oh, guys, I had an encounter of truth, but I believe this because this was passed down to me, so I'm passing it down to you. We're stewards of this. Now, I think that once we say that, we can then begin to show how reasonable and rational and we can seek understanding, like one of the great church fathers that said, it's faith seeking understanding. Before it is, instead of saying, well, it's understanding seeking faith. Let me see if I can understand everything and then I'll believe. No, the gospel challenges us to say, would you Receive the witness that has been passed down to you, the word of the witnesses. And then from that place of faith, come into understanding. But here's the thing, you guys. We may have faith because of the witnesses of the resurrection, but our faith is not in them, right? Our, we're not putting our faith in Mary or Peter or any of them. We're not putting, who are we putting our faith in? In Jesus, in Jesus himself. And maybe, maybe a great illustration of this 
is the story of a French tightroper named Charles Blondin. In the winter of 1858, a 34-year-old French acrobat named Jean-Francois Gravelet, don't know if that's right, um, better known as Monsieur Charles Blondin, he traveled to Niagara Falls hoping to be the first person to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He was 5'5", five five, 140 pounds. He had a rope that was 1,300 feet long, 2 inches wide, made of hemp. I, I'm not sure why that part matters. This is all from the Smithsonian Magazine, so let me read you an excerpt. On the morning of June 30th, 1859, about 25,000 thrill-seekers arrived by train and steamer and dispersed on the American and Canadian side of the falls. As the banks grew full with swarms of spectators, among them were statesmen, judges, clerics, generals, members of Congress, capitalists, artists, newspaper editors, professors, debutantes, salesmen, and hucksters. Vendors hawking everything from lemonade to whiskey. Blondin's manager, Colcourt, gave tours to the press, attempting to explain the logistics of what the great Blondin was about to attempt. Shortly before 5 p.m., Blondin took his position on the American side, dressed in pink tights, bedecked with spangles. Don't really know why. There you go. Pink tights, some kind of spangles. I don't know why he's doing that, but that's what he's doing. The lowering sun made him appear as if clothed in light. He wore fine leather shoes with soft soles and brandishing a balancing pole made of ash that was 26 feet long, weighing nearly 50 pounds. Slowly and calmly, he began to walk. Children clung to their mother's legs. Women peeked from behind their parasols. Several onlookers fainted. About a third of the way across, Blondine shocked the crowd by sitting down on the cable and calling for the Maid of the Mist. You know, the Maid of the Mist is that boat that takes tourists uh, around the falls. He calls for the Maid of the Mist to anchor momentarily beneath him. And he cast a line down and hauled up a bottle of wine. (laughs) I think he needed it. He drank and started off again, breaking into a run after he passed the sagging center. While the band played Home Sweet Home, Blondine reached Canada. One man helped pull him ashore and exclaimed, I wouldn't look at anything like that again for a million dollars. But after 20 minutes of rest, Blondine began the journey to the other side. This time with a camera, one of those old Degora cameras strapped to his back, he advanced about 200 feet, set it up, (laughs) and began to take a picture of the crowd on the American side. Smile. Then he put the camera back into place and continued on his way the entire walk from bank to bank to bank took 23 minutes. And then Blondine immediately announced he would do an encore performance on the 4th of July. So on the 4th of July, Blondine appeared on the American end of the cable, this time without his pole. Halfway across, he lay down on the cable, flipped himself over, and began walking backwards on the tightrope. He stopped again to take a swig from his flask. The Smithsonian Magazine does not tell us what was in that flask. And then he made it safely to the Canadian side. And on the journey back, he wore a sack over his body, depriving himself of of sight. This guy's crazy. Some of you are like, dude, I want to do that. Please don't. By 1896, it was estimated that Blondine had crossed Niagara Falls 300 times and walked more than 10,000 miles of rope. But maybe the most famous story was when one time he appeared on the Canadian end of the cable with Harry Colcord, his manager, on his back. 
carrying him on his back. And Blondine gave his manager these instructions. He said, listen to me, Harry. <laughs> you are no longer Colcord. You are Blondine. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself, or we will both plunge to our death. Well, a few of the guide ropes snapped along the way, but they made it. See, I think for some of us, we think faith is like getting up on this tightrope and saying, okay, there's sin and death and destruction, but I can believe, I can, I can believe, I can do it. There's temptations and there's all these confusing messages, but, but I can do it. And instead, what it is, is that the witnesses of the apostles, the witnesses of the church say to us, look, there is a man who crossed over. There is a man who defeated sin and death. There is a man who conquered the grave and hell itself. There is a man that if you will cling to him, he will ensure you cross over to safety. It's Jesus. And Jesus says to us, look, faith means you saying, okay, it is no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in me. I'm not just Glenn trying to figure this out and validate my life of faith and prove the resurrection and prove the virgin birth. No, I'm just Glenn clinging to Jesus. Clinging to Jesus. And when he sways, I sway. When he moves, I move. And I'm not going to attempt any balancing on my own. That's what faith looks like. That's what faith looks like. What else are we supposed to do with this good news? Well, Mark 16, verse, eight, verse 5, tells us the very first people who arrived to the tomb, the women. And it says, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Therefore, you will see him just as he told you. Verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's it. That's how the original ending of Mark's gospel is. The angel says, look, it's the tomb is empty. He's not here. Go and tell. And they're like, ah! And they went away frightened and told no one. <laughs> You're like, okay, go and tell. Except they didn't. Except they didn't. But then these additional verses are supplied later. Later, people said, look, when the book was first written, probably everyone who was hearing it knew the rest of the story. They were living the rest of the story. Eventually, they must have told people, otherwise we wouldn't all be here. And so they thought, well, we better write down how it really went on to end. And so verse 15, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Verse 19, and so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere. Everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. See, catch this. 
An angel says, go and tell. The disciples, the, the followers of Jesus say, no, we can't. Jesus, the risen Jesus says, go and tell. And all of a sudden, they can. What's the difference? What's the difference? See, in the end, my friends, it, it's not going to take a friend or a preacher or some kind of spiritual experience to change your life and make you a living witness to Jesus. It takes more than an encounter with an angel to change your life. It takes an encounter with the risen Jesus. The angels says, go and tell. The women are like, we're still so terrified. Jesus says, go and tell. And they say, okay. And they did. And strange things began to happen. All of a sudden, miracles are happening. They're doing signs and wonders. They're thinking, us? The ones who just a few days ago, Jesus rebuked for not believing? So, if you had any doubt that you needed to be a person of great faith before you tell someone about Jesus, the ending of the Gospel of Mark says, no, you don't. No, you don't. These guys just moments ago were being rebuked for their fear and unbelief. And now Jesus says, go. And at his word, all of a sudden, they are changed. Why? Because with the command of Jesus comes the power of Jesus. When Jesus says, go and tell, something changed in them just as something changes in us. When you encounter the risen Jesus, you become empowered to proclaim the good news of who he is with your words and with your life. See, there's no need to divide this up and make this false distinction between my words and my witness. No, you know, it's, all, it's all part of it. Our very life and action and love and service and words and all of it become how we go and tell. When I think about you going and telling, I think about all the teachers in our congregation who signed up to go into classrooms every day of the week and somehow through your life and witness to quote-unquote speak of Jesus subversively. I think of all of the moms and dads who stay home with their children every day, going and telling, carrying on the mission of Jesus by the way you disciple and form your kids. I think of all those working in the medical profession who find people at their very fragile state and say, I'm here. I'm here at this hospital because God sent me here to be a witness of Jesus with my life and love. I think of all of the business men and women, entrepreneurs, who say, yeah, we're in this to create a product, offer a service, all of that, but we're also here to be a little bit of a stake in the middle of our culture that says, Witnesses of Jesus are still here. We haven't fled. We're not hiding somewhere. We're here. We're going and telling with our lives and with our witness. I think about the different ones of you that show up at Queen Palmer Elementary for one hour a week to meet with one child. A few days ago, our staff walked over to the school the principal came out and thanked us for this program and told us about the difference it makes with the kids in the poorest elementary school in our city. And she said, could you get more mentors? We've got about 30 kids on the wait list. I think about that. 
I think about the young man in our congregation who, who fixes bicycles. He loves bicycles, and so he shows up at Monument Valley Park and fixes bicycles for the homeless, fixes their only mode of transportation. I think about neighbors that are beginning to pay attention to their neighbors, the people in their neighborhood, to have them over, share a meal, listen to their stories. You know, for me, I'm not the most naturally going and telling kind of person. (laughs) I've told you this before. I would much rather put my headphones on in an airplane than meet a stranger and find a way for the Lord to weave the conversation to Jesus. (laughs) That's not me. And maybe I'm scarred. I have issues from my youth group where we were made to go door to door, you know. Something happened to me last year, a year ago. When I was on a trip in England and I witnessed this church opening up the doors with radical hospitality through something called Alpha, welcoming people in over a meal to talk and explore their questions. And since we've launched this here, it's been a joy for me to be a witness to you guys. To you guys, I've seen the different ones of you lead your tables and let the conversations rise. I'm watching different ones of you step out and shine and and invite people into their stories as people kind of come to the brink of faith. See, there's just something about Jesus, amen? Several months ago, I decided that not only were we going to lead our church through Alpha, but I was going to use it, the youth, they have a youth version of it, to talk with my older kids, my two older kids, 11 years old, 9 years old about it. So we watched these videos on YouTube, the Alpha Youth film series thing and watching it with Sophia and Nora and one week it was the the story of question of why Jesus died and I'm watching it with them and you know they're in front of me I'm behind you know kind of you know holding them but I'm standing a little further or sitting a little further back and the video ends I'm just a mess I'm crying like dad what's going on I'm like guys it's just it never gets old There's just something about Jesus. And when our eyes have been opened to see the good news of who he is, how could we not cling to him? And then how could we not only cling to him, but invite others to do the same? Amen? Would you bow your heads this morning? My prayer for you is that you would continue to encounter the risen Jesus. You would continue to encounter the risen Jesus so that in every part of your life, Monday morning you wake up and go into your homes, your neighborhoods, your schools, your classes, your carpool lines, and say, Jesus, empower me to go and tell today. Empower me to go and tell today. This good news that is for everyone. It's an invitation to cling to Jesus and to go and tell others to do the same. Maybe let the Holy Spirit talk to you a bit about that. Maybe for some of you, 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 you've never really come to the place of saying, I cling to Jesus. You've really just thought, Christianity is about balancing on the tightrope yourself and being good, being better, being nice, being kind. 
and you feel like your whole life has been about trying to balance. (laughs) And this morning, Jesus is saying, cling to me. (laughs) Cling to me. Let go of your own works and performance and good behavior. Cling to me. And for others of you, the risen Jesus wants to wants you to hear his words breathing, reverberating inside you. Go and tell.